My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Aurore Forêt and Lily Schwartzbaum. Movements don't just happen. People have to make them happen. And you don't just make them happen by wishful thinking or by willing them into being. It takes a lot of quiet, unglamorous, persistent work, much of which is about building relationships and building skills. As the resistance on the West Coast intensifies to the various dangerous efforts to export the climate-destroying hydrocarbons from the Alberta tar sands, so various pathways to export them eastwards have grown in importance. As a consequence, resistance is heating up in the East as well. Back in May and June, one of the first major mobilizations of both Francophone and Anglophone youth in Quebec against the tar sands took place. On one level, La Marche des Peuples pour la Terre-Mer was a powerfully symbolic action, as people walked for 34 days along proposed and actual pipeline routes stretching 700 kilometers across Quebec. More fundamentally, however, the walk was a crucial exercise in laying groundwork. Along every step of the way, relationships, consciousness, and skills were built, not just among the upwards of 350 people who marched for at least one of the 34 days, but with and among the many more who participated in events and activities in each of the many communities the march passed through. City-based climate justice organizers and activists in frontline communities shared stories and skills and got to know one another. Veterans of the 2012 student strike and those who live on the land through which bitumen might be piped began to talk, to learn from each other. As the pipeline process advances in Quebec and the need for climate justice resistance intensifies, this will likely be a potent combination. Forêt and Schwarzbaum are climate justice organizers who were heavily involved in the march, and they tell me about how it came to be, what they did along the way, and what they foresee in the future. I spoke with them by Skype from Montreal. My name is Aurore Forêt, and I'm one of the organizers of the Marche des Peuples pour la Terre-Mer, and I live in Montreal. Hi, I'm Lily. I'm another one of the organizers for the Marche des Peuples pour la Terre-Mer, and I also live in Montreal. The Marche des Peuples pour la Terre-Mer, the People's Walk for Mother Earth, was is a walk uh, against pipelines and fossil fuels, and it was a 34-day, 700-kilometer walk along the routes of the Trans-Canada Energy East Pipeline and the Enbridge Line 9 Pipeline. The issue of climate change is more urgent than ever. And in Canada in particular, there has been a growing movement against tar sands, as Canada is the site where a huge deposit of tar sands exists in Alberta. And so in each province, there have been more local mobilizations growing. In Quebec, the marche was really a kind of tipping point of really grassroots citizens mobilization, and especially focusing on a youth part of the province. The Energy East Pipeline, if it is constructed, which it will not be, would be the largest pipeline in North America. It would be over a million barrels a day going from Alberta to New Brunswick for export. And then the other pipeline is the Enbridge Line 9 Pipeline, which is a project that already exists. It's a 40-year-old pipeline that was previously flowing west and had crude oil going through it. 
And last October, they were just approved to reverse the flow and send it east and to put tar sands through it. So as a really old pipeline, there are a huge number of concerns about the capacity of such an old pipeline to put through this very corrosive substance. And we already see blockades happening in Ontario on the construction, on the alterations needed on this pipeline. And so in Quebec, the growing concern about Line 9 has also been feeding into the larger concerns about Energy East. The organizing for the March start in January when a large meeting was called with a lot of citizen groups and individuals who are climate justice activists, as well as larger environmental organizations. That first meeting was to discuss the idea of a march. So it had been circulating a lot. I think this idea, a lot of people wanted to organize a very symbolically strong action. And there was a lot of memories from the 2011 shale gas walk that had a really big strategic success on the fight against shale gas in Quebec in 2011. So, yeah, we had the meeting in January, and then from that, a group formed from these 30 or so people, and we started organizing weekly for the walk. Tell me about the kinds of discussions that you had to have in the early meetings. What sort of things beyond just the fact of a march needed to be decided? Well, I think an interesting thing is that there was kind of just a training that was needed on how to organize as a group, like setting up kind of the structures of what our meetings looked like. A big part of the marche is the pretext to be together and form networks together across these different groups. And so the act of making those structures was an exercise in itself. We came up with a structure that was really horizontal in terms of how we worked together. That's something that a lot of the people around the table in the room had experience with and really held very important in their values and in their way of organizing. We came up with a way of making decisions that was consensual or almost consensual um, and a way of also resolving these questions and these conflicts through a lot of discussion, but also growing through them. So there were some thorny issues that we had to discuss, but there was also some really good ideas that came from it. We had to decide the route. There were a number of different committees, so how to fundraise, how to organize the housing and the food in each of the stops. There was an Indigenous outreach committee that was contacting people along the route to really bring that perspective to the forefront in our walk. There was a conversation about whether it would be a walk or a bike ride to cover more ground. In the decision about the route, one of the things that you wanted to accomplish with that was to follow the route of the pipeline. Were there other things that you wanted to make sure that the route accomplished? that guided the decision about where exactly you would go? An obvious one was stopping through bigger cities so that there would be a bigger demo that was waiting for us. The importance of starting in Kakuna and ending in Ganesatage was a cool discussion. So Kakuna is the site where TransCanada is yeah. in the process of, will hopefully be stopped to build an oil port. They are building it in the middle of beluga mating season, and it's really messing up a whole lot of ecosystems environmentally, but also ecosystems in their economy. The tourist industry is very strong there, and if a spill were to occur there, it would wipe out the jobs of many, many people who are living there. So we started in Kakuna, where they're about to build, or hopefully will not build, this port. And we ended in Ganesatage, which is the site of the Oka Crisis, which was an event that happened in 1990, where a golf course was trying to expand onto traditional Mohawk territory. And after a blockade that really sparked a lot of awareness and resistance and military repression from the side of the Canadian government, 
It's known as one of the most recent examples of really strong indigenous resistance and standing your ground to protect that kind of land. Following that idea of really bringing the perspective forward of indigenous peoples in this environmental context. Tell me about fundraising, about the ways that you raised money and what you needed to raise money for. We decided to do online participatory fundraising campaigns with Indiegogo. It's one of the platforms where you can launch a video to explain your project, pledge that you need a certain amount of money, and then ask around in your in your networks, among your friends, your families, allies, and the larger public. I think we had about 200 funders or more than that who donated maybe between five bucks and a hundred dollars, and we raised almost seven thousand with that. Our overall budget was almost double that, and so we also got support from groups. The biggest expense that we had or we were planning to have was going to be food. And we actually ended up with a very good budget balance, thanks to also the people who are organizers in the walk and were very rigorous. But we also did a lot of dumpster diving along the route, and we were able to save a lot of money. And every stop along the route, we were hosted by local communities who would cook food for us. And we were overwhelmed with so much generosity that people would actually prepare breakfast and lunch the next day for us. And so our expenses went really down with that. And apart from that, it was lots of logistical costs. So for materials, because we had bikes who were following us with trailers to transport most of the stuff. We had to pay for gas as well for uh, escort car that we needed to have, as well as helping some communities who needed transportation. So like Lily was saying, one of the goals of the MASH was to build ties with First Nations communities. And we definitely wanted participation in the walk to be accessible to everyone. So. Not only was it free for everyone to come on the walk, but we also wanted to be proactive in making sure that it was more accessible. And tell me more about the work of building relationships with First Nations communities. So as a disclaimer, I'm Anglophone in Quebec and Aurora is Francophone. We both speak both languages, but we're also coming from different worlds. So the kind of comparison that we have to the organizing that's going on is somewhat from a different perspective. The thing that I, I really, really appreciated about the walk was it was very just like human contact. You know, it was just calling friends of friends and seeing who knew the communities in each of these neighborhoods. And so while the walk itself was mostly made of non-Indigenous people, when we would come to a community, a few folks would come out and talk about what's happening on their land. They would bring ceremonies and music, which was a really important part of emotionally connecting with the issues that we were fighting for. And I found that really, really important. There was especially the presence of one girl, Natasha Canapé-Fontaine, who's an Innu slam poet. And throughout the march, her presence was really strong in making sure that that perspective was continually brought up. I think the cool thing from what I could see from before the march is that the presence of Indigenous people is more and more a thing that is expected or appreciated. And that, again, is something that you see all over Canada, that more and more when you're talking about climate justice, you're automatically talking about Indigenous issues. One thing that I found really good in that regard, I wouldn't say we completely succeeded in bringing, you know, environmental activists and First Nations in Quebec together. But I think it was a step that hopefully is in the right direction. And one feature of the Marche was that it was really a place for popular education. Throughout the month, we did a lot of trainings among ourselves and with people coming from outside as well. But 
we really made a lot of room for subjects to be discussed in an empowering way. And it brought up a lot of discussions on our relationship to First Nations people in Canada more generally, but also in Quebec, where it's a pretty specific context in terms of desires and politics around Quebec independence. And yeah, we've seen a lot of moments where there was these educational moments and resources being shared, sharing each other's knowledge. I think that's a good step for people who perhaps weren't exposed to the issues and and now probably feel much more ready to embrace that kind of work and also to bring forward Indigenous perspectives in the environmental work. And what other kinds of popular education did you do over the course of the march? From messaging workshops to strategy to nonviolent direct action, consent and anti-oppression it was both run by people just within the community of the Mouch, like as we were going, who said, okay, tonight we don't have a show going on. Oh, we didn't even talk about the shows. <laughs> we should do that. On the nights when we didn't have a show, they would bring something forward. And then also people along the route would offer, one person offered a nonviolent communication workshop. People would talk about just what's going on in their own land. There was one guy who gave a really interesting and scary presentation on the progress of TransCanada in the region, including the kind of harassment and trickery that the company was doing to farmers in the area. So it was a really, really wide range of conversations and workshops. And tell me about the shows. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well... Every night we were greeted in the local community. So we had local organizers who, for the most part, did all of the work in terms of finding us a place to stay and food to eat. And almost every night, as much as we could, we would have a cultural, artistic, political program. So in some cases, it could be showing a documentary or just having a discussion. But most of the nights, it was a cabaret. There was an incredible amount of creativity within the walkers and within the communities that hosted us. And we basically had incredible evenings of slam poetry and music and participatory theater as well. So we had a wide array of local artists who brought their artistic perspective on the fight against the pipeline and against the tar sands. So that was a really strong aspect of the walk. The role of forum theater was really important. Oh, I was describing it as participatory theater, where the audience is invited to kind of step into a scene and experiment with what would happen if. And so there was one skit that was played in a bunch of different towns where there'd be three activists and they would realize that I think it was the port was approved and it was going to be built and that was it. There was nothing more they could do beyond the demos and the petitions. And so one of the activists was trying to convince the other two jaded activists that there is something more that you can do. There are creative things. And then the audience was invited to step in and explain what are the steps beyond petitions and demonstrations. What are the next creative ways to go about this movement? What I found really important about that is that it was literally starting the conversation in those communities who would be the ones doing the next steps. Yeah, so really the role of art in bringing forward those conversations in really direct ways, it was really powerful. It was a much more emotionally resonant way of connecting people to the struggle than just being like, this is bad. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and, and it was also a, a more accepting way. Mm-hmm. Like part of that forum that you're describing is how can we find the really wide array of solutions and strategies to deal with this problem and to reinforce our movement. So we weren't coming with a pre-made solution and telling local communities what they should be doing. It was really like the spirit of the walk, which was to give the tools to someone else for them to be supported in their organizing. And yeah, it brought more creative suggestions. 
And we also did a lot of door-to-door, and that was something that I personally found really, really amazing about the walk, which was it just came up, the idea to have a team within the walk as we were walking on the side of the road that would do mobilization and door-to-door. And so every day you had a few people whose job for the day was to run from door to door as the rest of the people were walking the normal 20Ks of the day and distributing information and also getting signatures for a declaration to protect the land and stand against the Energy East Pipeline and fossil fuel extractions in Quebec and in Canada. And we got over a thousand signatures, I think, of that. So, yeah, we were able to touch a lot of people with this initiative. Tell me about the range of kinds of conversations that you got into with folks when you were doing the door-to-door and the events and so on. At the base, most people were very, very, very supportive. It's quite hard not to be. (laughs) These are really scary projects. I think the crux of it was more a question of lack of or misinformation. That was where we saw less immediate support. For example, quite a few people didn't know that Energy East was a private project. They thought it was a government project. Some people didn't know that the pipeline was passing on their land. And then once in a while, there are some people who were adamantly for the project, but it was very few. So there were a few who just said, oh, we're not political. Like, we don't engage in political things. We're going to, like, stay neutral on this one. But, I mean, inside the towns at the press conferences and the shows and stuff, and in general, there was an enormous amount of warmth and excitement And I think it really showed in the support that the Marche got. So Akhar was talking about the food. I think most of the people that we spoke to aren't identifying as activists. This is really the first time for quite a few of them, they're kind of stepping into this role. And so the ways that they were starting to participate would be like giving us a tub of maple cream or showing us this beautiful park with land art. These very just human ways of support. It was very much building a social movement on human connections, which takes a really long time and builds a much stronger base for the kind of showdown, I guess, that will come in the future when these projects are increasingly on the table. And tell me more about your sense of what's already been going on in the different local communities. I mean, it's really different in different places. Some of the places have a really strong legacy from the anti-fracking walk. In one of the last towns we went to, there were all of the signs all over the place that was like against shale gas, which was really nice to see. So some places those networks already existed. Some places it looked like they were getting mobilized for the first time and it was just a lot of door to door. Similar to what the Marsh was doing, a lot of that like human person to person contact. There was one mayor who was personally doing door to door at La Nore, which was really, really cool. And then, I mean, there were also some towns and communities that weren't mobilized at all or even were a little bit hostile to the walk itself. There are some towns that we couldn't find a place to stay. Yeah, it's different in different places. Give me a sense of where things stand now. The march as organized has happened. Are there ongoing organizing efforts under the banner of the march, or new plans springing from the march? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of new plans. That was always the objective, right? That the march was just one step in a much longer process, and also that it wasn't necessarily meant to live on forever. So it was really a tactic, and it was something that was happening for a month at a certain moment. But like Lily was saying before, it's always a pretext for other things. We're going to continue the organizing efforts. There's several initiatives that I think are going to be put into place. Throughout the summer and early fall, there's a few meetings that are planned 
that are a convergence of different groups working on the tar sands and the fossil fuels issue in Quebec. And again, it's very much like the Marche. It's going to be bringing people together from different citizen groups, but also bringing in people who did the walk because it was almost like a mobile school for climate justice activism. And so you have people who feel really, really, really enforced in their activist work. And that's definitely not going away. We're going to be creating a lot of opportunities to keep growing the movement and to also evaluate what the strategies are for the next year and how we succeeded and what we need to work on after the walk. But that network, we have a really big network now and people are really mobilized and motivated. There's also a really strong sense of going to give support to other groups. So when there are going to be local fights or local meetings that are happening in communities where we pass by, we definitely are going to try to be there to help them. I think a really important legacy that this marche is leaving is that until it happened, there wasn't really a mass youth francophone movement against tar sands. And this is really the first push that we see in regards to that kind of organizing. And in terms of what Aurore was referring to as the school, like the kind of school that we went through collectively was very much in the context of solidarity in the context of solidarity with people who are affected by these pipelines. It's interesting because a lot of the marche were people who are from Montreal, and the context of organizing in Montreal is different from the context of organizing on the ground, both because of the way that it's happening. So in terms of, you know, small communities that can really see each other and build community just by dint of, you know, going to the same supermarket or whatever, versus Montreal, where the pipelines don't pass, and it's a lot more alienating, but also the place where all of the headquarters of these things are or the resources and legacy of a more activist scene. So it'll be super interesting seeing what happens with those youth, including myself, us youth, <laughs> who were trained in that way to come back to a more urban setting and put that kind of training into action. And also, I think there's something really exciting about convergences that can happen. So mm -hmm. Lily's referring to, you know, Francophone youth mobilizing around the tar sands. If you look at Francophone youth in Quebec, that's also a lot of the people who carried the student movement. Mm -hmm. And that's a really, really big force. And I think we're seeing more and more bridges where the different movements can actually come together around climate justice. And the fact that Francophones and Anglophones hopefully will continue to work more together is also a nice bridging across provinces because we know these pipelines don't stop. One of the things that we saw happening in the organizing of the march was someone added a portion from Kanastake to Ottawa. So an extra eight days. That was a whole separate organizing to bring that message to Parliament Hill and also to bridge into Ontario. For both the end of the walk in Kanastake and in Ottawa, we had speakers and ties being made with activists from the West or from Anglophone Canada, as well as First Nations from the West or from Anglophone Canada. So that's an exciting convergence that we're seeing happening also. The very different context of organizing in the big city versus organizing in the smaller communities, that's something I'm very interested in as someone who lives in a smaller community, but I'm involved in different networks and projects. And it's often interesting trying to get folks whose main organizing happens in Toronto to understand that, you know, it really does happen differently in smaller communities. Tell me a bit more about the ways that that potential disconnect, but also opportunity for relationship building played out in the context of the March organizing. It was, I think, new for both of us mm -hmm. to really think of it in those terms. 
One thing that we really intentionally were paying attention to was that we were coming into communities where we were there for just one day. And it felt really intense in the walk, too, because every day you're picking up your stuff to keep walking. So it was really a short moment that we were spending in these communities. And so there was a really strong sense of not doing anything that could have a lasting impact that could be negative or creating some sort of vacuum or creating consequences that we weren't going to be there to deal, to confront afterwards. I think when we were choosing actions to do, for example, that's one thing that always came back, which was to make sure that the local organizers that we were working with were comfortable with that and also giving them, I think, more of a voice than us who were just passing through. So really the idea of getting behind people who do the work and who know their communities, although that's challenging to implement on a day-to-day and individual level. A really fundamentally important part of the walk was, like I keep on referring to this human aspect, but it's really just something that's stuck with me. I think understanding the issue of pipelines and environmental destruction is in some ways a lot easier when you live in the country. Because you have a connection to land, you know what you're fighting for. And as someone who always grew up in urban contexts, that was really, really important for me to be exposed to. So on the one hand, I think it was really important getting people out of the city and like reconnecting with what we're fighting for, remembering what we're fighting for, and not just focusing on the things that we're fighting against and the way that we're doing it. So the interesting thing about the walk, and interesting thing, was how positive it was. It was this really enormous, very festive, loving atmosphere that had a lot of art and music and really intentional conversations. That warmth was really important in making the struggle accessible to people who hadn't identified as activists before. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's related to being on the land also, that the way that we were looking at this struggle, at least in an urban context, is often very negative and draining and it burns you out in the end. Whereas on this walk, we were healthy. We were on the land. We were building these communities. We were very present. There weren't other meetings to go to. We weren't in front of computers. It was really just about talking to people. And people in those communities got excited to join us. We weren't these like scary anarchist kiddos, you know, like we might be espousing anti-capitalist views in general, but people loved talking to us and telling their stories to us and just walking with us for a few days. And so at the end of the walk, whereas in urban settings, people would be like, I'm totally burnt out. I need to take a week to just like go away and whatever. People kept on repeating it. It was nourishing that I was nourished at the end of this walk. And so I think when you're looking at social movements, that kind of getting out of your comfort zone and just reconnecting with the thing that you're fighting for and building positive connections with it that nourish you as opposed to the negative connotations of the things that are fighting you was a really important aspect of bridging the urban-rural gap. You have been listening to my interview with climate justice organizers Aurore Forêt and Lily Schwartzbaum. We've been talking about the 34-day walk for climate justice that happened in Quebec earlier this summer. For more information about it, go to peuplepourlaterremer.ca. That's all one word, peuplepourlaterremer.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.